I'm doing. I wanted to get the lyrics on my screen so I didn't forget them, but I still feel weird um, using my phone during the service. Maybe that's from the person who leaned over my shoulder one time and said, put your phone away. But anyway. In your Bibles, uh, turn to Luke chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible with you, take one of our, our church Bibles. They're un- under the seat, under your pew. Uh, take one of the church Bibles and turn to page 948. Working our way through some of the uh, experiences of Jesus, we were here before Christmas. We've looked at uh, Jesus' baptism, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And the way Luke packages the story of Jesus is somewhat different from Matthew and Mark's account. And Luke packs together the baptism, the temptation, and the first sermon of Jesus in in very uh, close space. And so in Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 14, we have Jesus' experience preaching. Now he's been out preaching in other places around Galilee. Luke chapter 4, verse 14 Page 948, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. And he went to Nazareth, his hometown. So kind of picking up on the um, hockey night in Canada, hometown hockey thing, we called it hometown preaching. Jesus went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute, because already in these first few verses of this section about Jesus' first sermon, the Holy Spirit has been a significant part of the story. Verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Verse 18, the passage he reads begins with this statement about the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. In fact, if we go back to the very beginning, back to the um, nativity account of Luke, in Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is involved in this whole story almost from the very beginning. It is the Holy Spirit that comes upon Mary, and she is pregnant with the Son of God. When Mary and Elizabeth meet each other, both women, the Holy Spirit is filling both of them, and they meet each other, and the babies leap in their womb. John is already filled with the Spirit of God in his mother's womb, and there's joy when they meet. And so right from the very beginning, I think it's important for us to understand the importance of the Holy Spirit, the importance of the living presence of God, the powerful living presence of God at work in the life of Jesus. If we go back to Jesus' baptism, John came out of the wilderness into the water. Jesus comes out of the water where John baptized him, and he is led by the Holy Spirit. Luke is pretty clear The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan for 40 days. You could say the Holy Spirit leads Jesus into trouble, leads Jesus into hardship. Interesting to hear Dan 
saying the testimony of these pastors in India, that they, are, they, are, they, know what, they know what's in it for them. They know what they could face in terms of the uh, extremism uh, within the Hindu religion, and uh, their lives are on the line. I think we sometimes forget that with the Holy Spirit in our lives, it doesn't mean this insulation or uh, this shield around us. Sometimes it leads us into trouble. And what we'll see today is that actually the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out of trouble. could also say that the Holy Spirit is present during trouble. So in, in this whole thread of the early life of Jesus, as Luke uh, records it for us, the Holy Spirit in the beginning, the Holy Spirit uh, at Jesus' baptism, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, the Holy Spirit in Jesus' temptation as the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And now we see as Jesus begins his sermon, he is focusing again on the Holy Spirit. The, whole, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. A good summary statement of Jesus' ministry comes in Acts chapter 10 when Peter is visiting uh, the Gentile soldier, the Roman soldier Cornelius, and as Peter is preaching his sermon, he says about Jesus to Cornelius, he says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, how he went about doing good. That's why the fruit of the Spirit of goodness is so important. How he anointed God, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. The living presence of God, the powerful presence of God, and that summary statement sort of reminds us in these early days, as Luke is sort of laying this out about Jesus, the Holy Spirit is a key factor, is a key presence, if you will. So here's my question. If Jesus needed to be full of the Holy Spirit for his ministry, how much more do you and I need to be full of the Holy Spirit for the ministry God has called us to? Verse 18, Jesus stands up to read the scripture. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus hasn't said too much in Luke's story up to this point. If you know Luke's version of the nativity account, you know that there is a time when Jesus says something in the temple when Mary and Joseph come to find him in the temple, Jesus says to them, didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? But in these stories of the baptism, the temptation, and Jesus' first sermon, Jesus' words are all about quoting the Bible. He is quoting the Hebrew Scriptures. He doesn't say anything other than quoting the verses. In the temptation with Satan, he uh, works from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and he works from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Here in his first sermon, he begins with Isaiah chapter 61 with a little bit of Isaiah 58 thrown in there. The first words of Jesus are primarily 
demonstrating his understanding and his knowledge of the Word of God. His absolute dependence on the Word of God. His readiness for hardship and trouble is based on his knowledge of the Word of God. His training for mission revolved around the Word of God. That kind of struck me as I was kind of following the thread. And it's always important to get the whole story, right? Not just the, not just the piece you're in. Four, this is the fourth time Jesus has spoken as an adult. All four times. Four out of four. It's Scripture. It's the Bible. How's our training? Do we know the Bible? Do we know the Bible as good as we think we know the Bible? Do we keep it fresh in our minds? To align ourselves with our Creator, to align ourselves with our Savior, the only way to do that is to understand and work with His Word. And I don't just mean memorizing it. I mean applying it. I mean integrating it. I mean making it a part of how we think, how we, how we react, how we respond, how we, how we dream. I heard Dan talk about Moses' dream, vision of a thousand churches. I just, like, how do you even have that dream, right? Like, I don't know, but, um, but obviously he's being shaped He's being shaped by the mission that God has called him to. And to be shaped by the mission that God is calling us to, we need to be shaped by the Word of God. If Jesus needed to be full of the Holy Spirit, and he was the Son of God, how much more do I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit? If Jesus was absolutely dependent on the Word of God for every situation, every circumstance, not that he's always quoting the Bible, and sometimes he doesn't quote the Bible when probably you think he should quote the Bible, but I think that the case is made, and the case is pretty clear from Luke, that if Jesus as the Son of God was absolutely dependent on the Word of God, how much more do I as a child of God, how much more do you as a follower of Jesus need to be saturated with the Word of God. Because when Luke gets to the end of his story, and we'll get there on Easter Sunday, but when Luke gets to the end of his story in Luke chapter 24, and Jesus is walking with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and he then goes to meet the disciples, what does he, what does he show them? He shows them how all the scriptures point to him. All the scriptures in the law and the prophets, all the scriptures point to him. If Jesus lived his life dependent on his knowledge of Scripture, how much more do I need to live my life dependent and applying the knowledge of Scripture? Verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Well, they should be. This is... This is good news. Jesus is bringing good news in his first sermon 
that we have recorded. He obviously preached. He's been around Galilee before he gets to Nazareth, but in the first recorded sermon in Luke's gospel, this is, this is good news. He's proclaiming freedom. He's proclaiming the captives being set free, uh, release of the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind. This is, this is good news. Forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins. The word, the word release, the word freedom, and the word forgiveness, are, are, it's the same word that just has different translations to it dependent on what word it's attached to. When it's connected to sins, it's forgiveness. When it's connected to being oppressed, it's freedom. When it's connected to being a prisoner, it's freedom. Freedom, release. I was thinking as we were singing Jesus Messiah, how many R words we can use to describe Jesus. Redeemer, rescuer, release, the one who sets us free. All sandwiched around sight for the blind. That's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus that he is our redeemer. He is the ransom from heaven. And, and these words and these phrases kind of pick up what in the Old Testament was known as the year of Jubilee. It's, it's the 50th year, the 50-year cycle where on the 50th year, debts are forgiven. Uh, those whoever was indebted to you and you had loaned stuff to, they are released from that debt. They don't owe you anymore. They are set free. The land goes back to them if you had borrowed land from them. Everything is released. Everything is set free. And so Jesus closes with the words from Isaiah to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It is the time of God's grace. No wonder the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And so in verse 21, he began saying to them, he, he be, this is how he began his sermon after he had read from those passages in Isaiah, he begins by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And implied is that there's a whole sermon that followed that. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Well, they, they know it's his hometown. They know this guy. He's familiar. But it's interesting the buzz that it kind of creates. They all spoke well of him and they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then trying to figure out who is this guy? Who is this guy? I wonder what they were thinking as they heard those words, the good news. I wonder if they saw themselves as the poor who were hearing the good news. I wonder if they saw themselves as the prisoners that were being offered freedom. I wonder if they saw themselves as the blind people who were being offered their sight. I wonder if they saw themselves as the, the captives, the oppressed who were going to be set free and released from their trouble and their hardship. There's a couple ways to take those phrases, right? You can take them literally, the oppressed, the captive, the blind, and, but you can also take them spiritually. The, the, the Bible uses those words and those phrases in two ways, to speak of our spiritual captivity, our spiritual blindness, our inability to understand who God is and who Jesus is and to hear clearly what he's saying. But there's also the physical freedom, because as Jesus, we will find... Um, 
Not only is he preaching, but he's healing in his ministry, physical healing. Dan and I, when we were talking this past week, one of the passages of Scripture he said that they use a lot um, in their evangelism has to do with Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, verse 28. Or sorry, Deuteronomy 10 verse 18. Deuteronomy 10 18 says this. Speaking of God, he gives justice to orphans and widows. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. So there's the physical side to this, and there's the spiritual side to this. I wonder how the, ch- the people in Jesus' synagogue of Nazareth, were they seeing this physically, literally, or were they taking this spiritually? Because when I think about that, it creates two very different groups of people, Right? The orphans and widows, the foreigners, the captives, the prisoners, the outcasts, the outsiders. This is where the good news of Jesus goes to. And today Jesus says the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He's, he's personifying it in, in himself. He's declaring himself to be the one who can bring this about. Verse 22, we've been there. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. In other words, a prophet is without honor except in his own country. So they're kind of challenging him. This sort of awe and amazement sort of changes a little bit, and Jesus is anticipating here what they're going to do, and here, here it comes, verse 24. Truly I tell you, Jesus continued, prophets are not accepted in their hometowns. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any one of those widows in Israel, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. Hear what Jesus is saying. When he goes back to the story of Elijah, in three and a half years of famine, only one person that we know of had a miracle from God. And that person was a widow who lived in Lebanon. And if you know your Middle East news now, you know that Lebanon is not Israel. The only person who received a miracle from God in Elijah's time in three and a half years of famine was a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. An outsider and a woman. And in those days, that was a big deal. Second story, verse 27. And also, Jesus says, there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. So there was Elijah and a famine, and then during his, his, um, his um, what's the word I want? Um, not prototype, what am I thinking of? Protege. Thank you, <laughs> Thanks, Ram. Uh, protege, Elisha. 
There were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So you know your Middle East map just from the news, right? There's Lebanon and there's Syria and there's Israel. Three and a half years of famine, the only woman, the only miracle that happened was to a Lebanese woman up in Sidon. And in this time of leprosy in all of Israel, the only healing that took place was in Syria near Damascus. So the Jewish people in Nazareth, in Israel, they're not liking that story. They're not liking that story because the good news went to Gentiles, not to Jews. And the response? Kind of what we'd expect. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove Jesus out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. Apparently around Nazareth there is like a a ledge, a cliff, 30 to 50 feet high or something. And in order they were going to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Interesting, isn't it, how quickly the crowd turned. After Jesus preaches his sermon, there's that awe and amazement. and Who is this guy? Where did he come from? And now all of a sudden, boom, something flipped their switch. Well, what I think flipped their switch is this whole story Jesus told about Elijah and Elisha and the fact that the reminder to them was that, yeah, just because you're the children of Israel, just because you're the people of God, doesn't mean you're where God wants you to be. And so the story of Elijah reminded them about a woman in Sidon in Lebanon. The story of Elisha reminded them it was a man in Syria. And then they may have remembered something else. So if you go back to verse 19 in our account in Luke of Isaiah 61, Jesus left out a very important phrase. So I'm going to invite you, keep your finger in page 948, turn back to page 680. 689. Turn back to page 689 if you're working with the Pew Bibles. Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus left out a very important phrase. Remember they were amazed and they talked about the gracious words that he had spoke when he preached? Well, after the Elijah story and the Elisha story and the reminder of Lebanon and the reminder of Syria... I think a few of the pieces fell together for them. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 2, because the verse goes on, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus left this out of his reading. He stopped his reading before he got to the vengeance part, before he got to the payback part, before he got to the judgment part of God's promise. And it seems like his hometown friends and family just didn't like that the good news was not for them. Or that it meant that they had to respond the same way the Gentiles do to the message and to the good news of Jesus. Interesting that Jesus doesn't say a word, Jesus leaves out that word of judgment. Next week, as we look at John the Baptist a little further on here, we'll find that is a problem for John as well. But it's interesting to me 
that Jesus leaves that out. But you know, there's something that happens in the story. Even though Jesus leaves out the statement about judgment, that when, when God sends the Messiah, when God sends his son, there will be judgment. Most of you probably know John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So the message, the message is salvation. The message is deliverance. The message is release. The message is healing. Judgment, punishment will come, but Jesus' message is couched in terms of, of salvation and deliverance. But you know, I, as I'm reading the story of Jesus and Nazareth, and especially when they get to the hill, when they get Jesus to the hill, and the way Luke says... They got to the hill, and Jesus walked through the crowd. I think there's all kinds of judgment happening there, just with the presence of Jesus. He doesn't need to say anything about punishment and judgment. I've just got this sense that as Jesus walks through the crowd, if anybody in that crowd is sensitive to the things of God, they're going, whoa, is me. In the chaos and the uproar and the intensity to push Jesus over the cliff, he just walks. The miracle happens right in front of their eyes. In, in the presence of Jesus, there, there's judgment. He doesn't even need to say a word. It kind of reminded me of what we saw last week in, when we were looking, reading through the book of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk had had... Um, all kinds of problems with what God was doing in the situation he was in and, and the darkness, the darkness that was surrounding him. But in chapter 2, when he, when he got to talking about who God is and he, and he sort of talked about God's character and God's radiance and God's glory and then he talked about the great things God had done, it's like just meditating on those things of God, the living presence of God, it's like his whole perspective changed. Just, just by allowing God to have the space that God needed to have in his head and in his heart, it changed. I, I think there's something about the living presence of Jesus that just changes things because he's present. You don't have to say anything. You don't have to remind anybody of anything. I, you can tell me later if you think I'm out to lunch, but I just think as Jesus walks through that crowd. And it's interesting. I, I would expect it to say as they're pushing him to, to the cliff, it would say he turned and walked back through the crowd because that's my picture. He's on the edge and they're all around. He's got a, it just says, no, he just walked through the crowd. I don't know how he did that. I, I just think it was very cool. He doesn't have to say a word. And his promise to them is this day, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The living presence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the living presence of Jesus. 
We're going to eat the bread and drink the cup in just a moment. Jesus said, this is my body. Jesus didn't say this represents my body. Jesus didn't say this is a symbol of my body. Jesus said, this is my body. And Jesus said, this is my blood. This is the living presence of Jesus. I'm not saying it changes into his body. I'm not saying it changes into his blood. I'm just saying what Jesus said. This is my body. This is my blood. And when you know I hold this in our hands in a few moments, allow your mind to go to the cross. Not the cross here, but the picture of the cross as you know it. But I wonder if for us to fully appreciate the significance of the good news of Jesus and what Jesus has done for us, and to recognize that the living presence of Jesus changes things. It changes my thinking. It changes my way of seeing. It changes my way of evaluating things. Maybe before we do, I would just invite you to, when we pause to pray, ask the Holy Spirit to fill you. Because when the Holy Spirit fills you, the living presence of Jesus just blossoms in your heart and in your mind. To be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit is to have the living presence of Jesus everywhere around us. And you know what the living presence of Jesus will do? It may force some house cleaning. And you know what I think? I, don't, I think it's just like Jesus on the cliff. He walks through the crowd. Some people knew they needed to do some house cleaning just because they were in the presence of Jesus. The living presence of Jesus will force me to clean house. But the living presence of Jesus will also give me freedom, release, forgiveness, life. As we do each communion service, we have oil here at the front, and if after the communion service you would like to be prayed for healing, um, the elders that are here and, and I, we will remain, and we'd be glad to anoint you with oil and pray for your healing. That's part of the good news. That's part of the good news that Jesus brings. But right now, let's pause to pray. I'm going to invite the ushers who are, or the elders who are serving to come and join me at the front and uh, the worship team to take their place on the platform. But let's pray. It sounds so simple, doesn't it? Invite the Holy Spirit to fill you so that the living presence of Jesus may flow through your life. Let's pray.
Father, I pray the living presence of Jesus would fill each of us. Fill us with your Spirit. Father, I pray the living presence of Jesus would fill this place, this building. Father, I pray the living presence of Jesus would fill us and then move through every place we go, every place our feet take us, every place our cars take us, every place our trucks take us, every place our mind takes us. Lord, may the living presence of Jesus fill us. Lord, thank you for your body that was given for us. The Lord, that being made in the likeness of our flesh and bone, in the likeness of our sinful flesh, yet without sin, you bring us forgiveness, you bring us release, you bring us rescue. Lord, thank you for this time around this table, around your table, to remember you. Lord, thank you that you haven't forgotten us. In your name we pray. Amen. As the elders distribute the bread, I just invite you to hold on to it, and then we will eat it together once they've finished distributing. <coughs>